for, for a year as a faith family, we've been coming around uh, just the truth of the gospel and letting that renew us and, and encourage us and hopefully uh, send us out as we serve our neighborhoods and our, our state and, and even in, into the world. So um, looking forward to see what God has in year number two for us. Uh, I kind of describe it as uh, a, a baby. So if we're one years old, you know, we're just learning to walk and, and hopefully uh, by this year, time next year, we'll, we'll learn to run a little bit, whatever that looks like spiritually for us as a, as a church. But um, just encouraged to be here. Um, kind of reflecting, not just back on the last year, but where, where God has, has brought me personally and many of you as well. Uh, see, I got saved about 25 years ago. So in biblical terms, I was transferred from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son God loves in Colossians 1 about 25 years ago. Now, if you know anything about uh, evangelicalism and, and American Christianity, and especially mid-early 90s, you'll know that that is like the height of what, what we now know as the seeker-sensitive movement. And, and what that was is uh, out of, I, I believe, a, a good heart that, that just said there, there, are, there are millions of people out there, and, and we want to we reach as many people as possible with the gospel. And so Praise God for that. That's something that we should still carry with us. That that uh, some people say, well, are you just about numbers? Yes, because every number represents a person created in God's image. So, so yes, absolutely, we're about numbers. Uh, the Book of Acts was about numbers. The Lord added to their number two thousand that were being saved that day. Uh, so so that was a good heart. But but some of the uh, ways that they decided to go about it. Uh, some of it was good, and some of it we're, we're still kind of struggle with, it. and maybe if you have a background that I had, struggle with today. And it was just this, like this idea that there's, there's all these seekers out there, and, and if we could just get them in here, then, you know, then things are going to take off. And, and God uses that, and God, does, God uses us all the time in spite of ourselves. And so uh, God, they just said, well, what, what do we need? You know, people... We need, uh, we need, you know, shorter sermons. That, that's a good one. Uh, we need uh, funnier sermons. That, that, that became a thing. No, no joke. Like pastors were, were taking classes on how to be funny. I mean, just ridiculousness. But because, because again, it comes out of this heart. Like, how are we going to re- reach people? So I'm not knocking it. It's just you, you needed short sermons. You needed funny sermons. If, and we needed to hip up our music a little bit, like, right? Like we, we, maybe a smoke machine and some lasers would help. Uh, and, and again, for some people, I'm, I'm not knocking that. Some people, that, like, that, you know, that smoke just represents the Holy Spirit to them. And so they feel the worship. I don't want to knock that in any way. Don't, don't hear me saying that. Uh, but it was just this idea, like... It, we need topical sermons, like we need to hit the felt needs of people, and, and that's a good thing. Like, hey, if people are going to come in here, they got to see how God is going to impact their marriages and, and their, their finances and their health. And, and so uh, we, we just kind of went to topical sermons that kind of addressed all those things. And again, God used all that, 
And we said, well, we've got to have just amazing, uh, amazing youth ministry, amazing kids programs. And so people began to look around and say, you know, which, which church has the best one? Like, do you, you got a rock climbing wall? No? Well, we're out. Uh, you got a Ferris? I need a Ferris wheel for my kid. And if you could just shoot my kid out on a fun tube when I'm leaving for the parking lot, that would be ideal as well. And so if you do that for me as a church, we're, we're coming back. Now, here, here's maybe a, a, some critique of that, though. What you win people with, you win people to. So, so if you win people with, it's all about you and your comfort and your desires, and, and we're just here to cater to you, then they believe that that's what God is all about. It's what we might call a man-centered gospel. That God just really loves me and you. So, so we sing that song, God really loves. But, but when we sing it, we sing it like, God really loves me and you. And uh, so even our, our worship became more man-centered. It became more of, man, aren't I lovely? So that's, that's what I got saved into. And, and even though I went to a church plant, uh, it, it grew very, very, very quickly. And the pastor, dynamic speaker, I mean, h- hilarious. <laughs> um, and he did a good job. He, he, uh, he knew that he, he could bring people in, but he wasn't great at really taking them deep. And so he hired good staff. And, and that was one of the first uh, significant graces to me. Two things happened in my life in those early days. First... God gave me a mentor. And this mentor wasn't man-centered, but he was God-centered. What I mean by that is, as we'd hang out with him, it wasn't about uh, this kind of this horizontal, here's what God is doing in my life, in your life. It was more about, um, man, he just loved God for who God is. It was this vertical, like, God is amazing, and he would just uh, help me see, like, let, let's just ponder and see the supremacy, the majesty, the beauty of God. And, and so that just kind of lifted my eyes and be like, oh, yeah, God is glorious in and of himself, not just for what he has done or will do for me. And so that was the first thing. And the second thing was, I was, we got a clicking noise. Can we, is that mine? My bad. We good? Okay. You can turn me down. I'll I'll yell if I need to. Um, The second thing was uh, I was delivering pizzas at Pizza Hut. So I'm a new believer, and and I'm driving around delivering pizzas, and and, uh, I'm in this kind of seeker-sensitive, man, here's all the great things God's going to do for me, and and here's what's going on in my life. But every night at nine o'clock as I'm delivering pizzas, this, this a uh, particular uh, Christian radio station uh, played this guy that preached. And, uh, but he didn't preach like anyone else I had heard. Like, he, he just, it was R.C. Sproul. And so at 9 p.m. every day of the week, I, I would be driving, and, and R.C. Sproul used to just uh, open up the scriptures, and, and he would just put on display the supremacy and the majesty and the glory of God. And at the end of his sermons, he, he didn't say, and this is how it impacts your life. He didn't say, here's the takeaway. Here's three things you could do. It was just like, behold your God. And, and all of a sudden, I was like, wow, that, 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 that's, that, that opened up a whole new world of authors and, and dead guys that I could read that, that just loved God for God. 
Now, now the Bible says that we should be worshipers of God, both what I'll call horizontally and vertically. And the seeker-sensitive church the, the, does a really good job of loving God horizontally. What, what I mean by that is, is helping people see that in the everyday, ordinary stuff of life, and in marriages, and in work, and relationships, all those things, that God is at work. And so you look around, and, and it helps you see that. But so, so that's loving God for what He does. But, but the Bible says we should also love God for who He is, to go vertical in our worship and understanding. And so that's been my heart. My prayer is that, that, that we would go vertical because it does impact our lives and it will change everything. Because there's going to be a day where horizontal worship is going to be very, very difficult in your life where everything comes crashing down, where, where, where things aren't going as you had hoped, where you're not living your best life now. And, and in that moment, if you haven't learned to go deep and wide and high with God, then, then you're left hanging dry. See, the, the, that church did a great job of going a mile wide, but only an inch deep. And I say, we, we want to go both. We want to go both. And, and and we, want, we don't want to say, come to Jesus because he'll make your life better. Jesus doesn't even say that, right? Certainly Habakkuk doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. What does Jesus say? He is always trying to tell potential disciples like, hey, you better check yourself. Like, th this isn't going to be easy. Like, it's so different than, uh, you know, just come to Jesus. He'll fix your life. He'll, 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 he'll make you rich. He'll do all these things. No, Jesus was like, you know, uh, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You sure you want to do this, bro? <laughs> He'll be like, you know, if the world hates me, you know they're going to hate you, right? They're going to hate you. You're okay with that? Your, your friends and your family might leave you because of me. This is how Jesus sold himself, right? He would say, uh, the, the kicker, the shocker was, hey, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me daily. They knew what that meant. That's the Roman torture instrument of death. It is, you must, you must give up everything. That's how Jesus sold himself. So Jesus, not really into the seeker-sensitive movement so much. I mean, he wants to reach as many people as possible. He just wants them to count the cost. It is costly to follow Jesus. It, the Navy SEALs, they're not like, hey, come be a Navy SEAL. It'll be awesome. You're going to have so much fun. Like, no, that's not how they sell it. They're like, oh, you want to be a Navy SEAL? Let me ask you, are you the best of the best? Because if you're the best of the best, then maybe 1% of you can be that. Because it's, you're going to experience more pain, more stress, more, more, uh, you're going to reach limits you thought you could never reach. You're going to be broken down, and the vast majority of you will never make it. But come be a Navy SEAL. And what happens there? Just like Jesus, they say, well, in the end, it'll be worth it. Well, it, it'll be worth it. It just won't be easy. And so how do we, how do we not just be an a, a inch deep and a mile wide? How do we go... How do we connect with God vertically? And that's what, where we're at in this series. As we conclu conclude Habakkuk, we've been going through this book, and, 
And Habakkuk was a guy who understood horizontal worship, and he looked around, and he was concerned about the work of God in his day. And so he cried out to God, and God amazingly answers him. And Habakkuk's like, hey, why do you let your people commit adultery? Why do you let your people do idolatry? All these things. And God says, you're right. I am holy. I'm dealing with it, Habakkuk. And Habakkuk's like, oh, okay, that's good. And he's like, but the way I'm going to deal with it, you're not going to understand. I'm going to use the even more wicked Babylonians to come be an instrument of discipline on you guys. It's going to be brutal. It's going to be painful. And, and Habakkuk is like, no, 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 no. That, that's, that's worse than, than it is before. Like, I, I don't get it. And, and God, unlike what he does with Job, where he's just kind of uh, really forceful with him, he's very gentle with Habakkuk. He's like, oh, Habakkuk, man, I'm sorry, you just don't understand. You just can't see far enough out to what I'm doing. Like, you don't even know that you're on a planet, Habakkuk. How, how are you supposed to know that uh, what I'm doing is, is for your eternal good? And, and in this conversation, at something happens. And in chapter 2, God says, the righteous will live by faith. It's the invitation through the whole Bible. Will you trust me. And, and something happens in Habakkuk. He begins to trust God. He begins to go vertical in his understanding, in his worship, in his theology. And that's where we come to in chapter 3. How do we do that? It, it reminds me of, uh, in preparation this week, I, I read the story of a guy named Alan Gardner. You probably wouldn't know him. He was a missionary in the 1800s. Uh, by most missionary standards, he was a failure. Like when he was a little kid, he wanted to be a sailor. He was from England uh, and he knew the sailing life would be difficult. And so his mom would find him even as like a five-year-old sleeping on the floor at night because, and, and he would say, because I know uh, when you're sailing, uh, it, it's hard to, to sleep sometimes. And so I'm, he just prepared himself. And so when he was 14, he went to the Naval College. When he was 16, he became a Naval officer for the, for the British and he, he fulfilled his dream. Not a believer. Uh, he got in a battle with an American ship in the mid eight, uh, early 1800s and, and saw death for the first time. It shook him to his core. When he was in China, uh, he got word that his mother had died. And he had, uh, for, for several years, he had snuck a Bible onto his ship and he had begun to read it. And, and when he heard word that his mother died, he went into a Chinese temple read the Bible, gave his life to Christ. He came back to England. Uh, his first wife died, uh, and, and he was left with these kids. And um, he, he wanted to be a missionary. He had sailed all over the world. He wanted to be a missionary, and so he went to the missionary society, and they're like, no, we only want ordained guys. And so he's like, oh, man, his heart was broken. And, and, and so he was like, okay, well, maybe there's some places where I've sailed. And so he goes to Africa, and he tries to share the gospel there, and he opens up some things there. He goes to, goes to the South Pacific and, and tries to share the gospel there. He goes to South America and keeps getting blocked, keeps getting denied, keeps getting kicked out, keeps getting robbed, keeps getting all these things are happening. And, and so finally he's like, I, I'm there's this one region. It has no government, has no uh, influence from Europe yet. It's in Argentina, uh, 
Tierra del Fuego or something like Tierra del Fuego. And so he sets it up and he gets a team of eight people and they, they sail to Tierra del Fuego and they, they, they land and, uh, in the cove and up the river and immediately they're robbed by the natives of everything. So they had brought some fishermen, they had brought some to get food, but all their supplies are gone. And for the next weeks and months, they slowly, one by one, starved to death on the beach as they waited for their reinforcements to come. They waited, and they waited, and they waited. And Alan Gardner writes this in his journal as the, the, the reinforcements came about three weeks too late, and they found the dead bodies on the beach. And they found his uh, journal, and in it, he wrote this on, a, on the last page, Psalm 3410. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And here's a man starving to death, and he's reciting the psalm that says, I lack no good thing. And in it, on the very last page, he writes, I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. That only happens if you have a very vertical view of God. If you can totally separate your circumstances from who God is and be overwhelmed. Here's a man who believes God called him to, to fulfill the Great Commission, to go to the nations. And, and in it, God allows them to be robbed and to starve to death one by one. And his last words are, I am overwhelmed with the goodness and the mercy of God. Somehow he's able to connect. See, when do we say God is good? Well, we say God is good when things are how we interpret them to be good. Our health is good. Uh, the bank account's good. The, the relationships are good. Man, isn't God good? But, but somehow Alan Gardner and Habakkuk, we're going to see, is able to connect to the goodness and grace of God apart from terrible circumstances in his life. Oh, as, as your pastor, I, my prayer is, Lord, give us that kind of faith. Give us that kind of faith that even in the midst of the storms, we can say, I am overwhelmed with the goodness of God. And so let's, let's look at this. For our joy, we have to get vertical. There's, there's some disciplines we're going to have to see that Habakkuk exercises for his joy and for our joy. Uh, it, it is this discipline of remembering and rejoicing in the Lord. It, it's a discipline. It's not a response, but an act of our will in concert with the Holy Spirit to remember and to rejoice. We're going to see when it's done, how it's done, and how it's possible. And so I'm going to read Habakkuk chapter 3. It's a little bit long. Uh, but let me just set this up for, a little, for you for a little bit. This is, you'll see, well, I'll set it up in a second. It says, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigionoth. That's a musical term. Uh, and then at the very end of the chapter, you'll see, to the choir master with stringed instruments. And, and throughout the chapter, you'll see uh, three times where it just stops and says, Selah. So if you've read the Psalms, you'll know the Psalms are, are songs sung to God. So this is a song that Habakkuk is about to sing to God. It's a, 
It's not like a song we sing in church today. Like, like Chris Tomlin, uh, Hillsong, they're not writing this song. There's no songs about pestilence and, and uh, the wrath and the plagues that we're singing that I know of. Uh, but he's going to sing this kind of driving song, and, and we'll see why it's important that it's a song. Now, let me tell you what the song's about, because when we read it, if you don't know what the song's about, you're like, man, that's a weird song. That's a confusing song. Um, and I read it about 20 times, and I was like, ah, I don't know where I'm going with this sermon. Uh, until I continued to hammer on it and read some commentaries, I'm like, ah, I see. Not a song I would write, but I, I see the purpose of the song. So here's the purpose. He's singing a song, not about his present circumstances. The Babylonians are at the gate about to destroy God's people and take them into captivity. And what does he sing? He sings a song about another time when God's people were in captivity in Egypt. And it's a song about God's sovereign grace and power bringing them out of Egypt. And so that's where the metaphors are going to come from. And we'll see why that's important in just a moment. Habakkuk chapter 3 I'll read the chapter. Listen carefully. This is God's word. I think it's my beard. I'm going to stop that. See? I got to shave next week. Okay. Habakkuk chapter 3. Again, sorry. Listen carefully. This is God's word. Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, oh, Lord, do I fear In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence. And plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows, As they sped at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will 
quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon us, people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. What you just read never will. So Habakkuk is exercising a discipline of remembering and rejoicing. And so the first question is, when? When are we to rejoice? When do we rejoice? Uh, Again, uh, in our kind of flat culture, our horizontal culture, we rejoice based on our circumstances. But that's clearly not an option for Habakkuk. God has said the Babylonians are going to come, and when they come, it's going to be very, very bad for you. They're going to drag you off to captivity. Many of you will starve to death. Others will have their eyes gouged out. Your women will be taken advantage of. It's the worst possible scenario. And yet Habakkuk is choosing to rejoice. Look at the win. He says in verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. It's it's a picture of crying. He's crying rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Rejoicing in the Lord happens in the midst of sorrow and suffering. Not separate. This isn't like, this is a time to be happy and this is a time to be sorrowful. The Bible says that that it is possible that that sorrow, deep, deep sorrow, the deepest possible sorrow, and at the same time, the highest possible joy are possible together concurrently. This blows our minds. Like, this is hard for us to understand until you've encountered people that have done that. I've, I've only done four funerals. Three of them were because of cancer, and one was my mom's. And in each case, uh, I remember my friend, for example, uh, Lisa, driving down to her. She, w- she w- worked with us as, as a missionary in Okinawa, and then she was uh, came back for cancer, and about a week before she died, we drove down to New Mexico to see her, and the cancer was so spread throughout her body, you could literally see the lumps in different parts of her body. And when we walked into her house, she turned and she smiled, and she said, I'm ready to go home. There was this deep, deep joy in her heart. My other friend, he, he was my age, actually younger than me, as he was dying of cancer, and I was talking to him uh, via FaceTime, and just before he went, he said, I'm ready to graduate. Uh, another friend of mine, some of you know, Doug Wittenberg, uh, as he left about a year ago, a family and his kids, and, and he gave testimony, he said, man, as awful as this is, and I don't 
want to die, and I don't want to leave my wife with my kids. As awful as that is, I would not change anything for the world. What I've experienced now is far greater, far higher joy than I could ever think or imagine. So rejoicing isn't tied to our circumstances. It happens concurrently in pain and suffering. In fact, pain and suffering either is going to drive you to higher heights and deeper depths of joy, or it's going to drive you to despair and pain. But the the time to set our minds now is when we aren't going through that, to say, this is who you are, God. And that's what Habakkuk's doing. In the midst of the deepest possible sorrow, he's choosing to rejoice. So that's when it's done. It happens concurrently. Uh, At the end of uh, verse 16, he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. That word quietly wait means I will have a deep sense of peace in the midst of the worst possible scenario. So it happens concurrently. Well, how is it done It's done as a discipline to remember and rejoice. Now, the first thing that we should kind of stop and pause is is what I've already said. This is a song. This is a song that he's written. It's a song that he wrote for himself, but it's a song that he wrote for God's people. And under the power of the Holy Spirit, it's a song for us. As, As image bearers, you and I were made for song. Okay? So, so you were made to sing. Like that's, that's part of, and sometimes it's a discipline to sing. Like it, this, it wasn't because Habakkuk was like, man, I just want to sing God's praises. He says, no, I'm going to write this song. I'm going to sing this song because this is for my joy and God's glory. Song shapes us. It shapes us in ways that that books and sermons do not. And I'm, I'm a fan of books and I'm a fan of sermons, but, but song shapes us. So I'm, I'm the father of daughters. And so uh, every week as we get home, uh, we, we'll hear around our kitchen island uh, by various people, myself included at times, the songs that we sing on Sunday being sung throughout the week in our kitchen. And sometimes my daughters will be like, I really like that song. And they will go and they'll just start pounding away at the keyboard. And at first sounds nothing like the song, but they're singing it, man. They're, they're just singing it out. And, and we hear the songs that we sing on Sunday about 50,000 times sometimes uh, during the week. And, and as they practice and they practice, they are rehearsing truth. They are remembering and rejoicing, and their hearts are growing. And, and, and even though sometimes we get annoyed with each other, and sometimes we're like, man, you don't sing that very well, uh, there's something happening in, in the song. And, and song shapes us. And so that's why it's important that you sing. So sometimes people are like, well, I'm just not a singer. Well, because it's a discipline for you. Maybe it's not your natural disposition, but, but if you are in Christ, God has given you song and has commanded you to sing for your good, for your joy, and for His glory. It's an act of the will to remember, to repeat. This is how it's done. Look at verse 17. Again, we're reminded of just how bad the situation is, but, but think about this. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. 
The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. This is starvation level famine that is coming on the land. It's, it's the year after World War II in Europe. It's this picture of there's, there's no food. Not only that, there's, there's no future hope for food. When, when you don't have cattle in the stall and when there's no grain to plant new seed, this means it's going to be very, very dark for a very, very long time. And verse 18 says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. It's a discipline. I will sing this song. I will choose to, with my voice, proclaim what is true, even though my heart is destroyed and crushed. Wick, uh, what did he say about his bones? Rottenness is entering into his bones, yet I will rejoice. But, but to do that discipline, you not only remember, but you repeat. Look at what he says. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So he doesn't need an editor here. Like, like in today, like an editor would say, man, you, you really, you already said that in the first line. You don't need to say that again. But the Bible always puts, puts things on repeat. This, this is for our good we, because we need to be on repeat. And so it says, I will t- rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in God. He's saying the same thing, but it's a little different. It's driving deeper into our souls. And, and so it's, it does this. He sends, sends Pharaoh multiple dreams. He sends Joseph multiple dreams. He, he gives the law multiple times. He, we have four gospels. Like, what's up with that? Don't we just need one? You know? Okay, we get it. You were virgin birth, your life, your death, your resurrection. Let's move on. No, he sends it four times. Why? Because each time it's driving differently. It's driving deeper. It's reminding us that the miracles are repeated. So he feeds the 5,000, he feeds the, the 4,000, and, and, and critics say, well, that's clearly, you know, that just shows you that this didn't really happen, they're just making it up. No, you haven't read the Bible. God does things on repeat. That's why we, the communion is so important for us. So every time we come to the table, every time we take the bread and dip it in the wine, uh, we're reminded, oh yeah, God does love me. Or maybe it's different this week. Oh yeah, God has paid for my sin. Oh yeah, God does take my sin seriously and so should I. He broke his body and shed his blood. And every week we remember and we're disciplined and we put it on repeat. And Habakkuk chooses to rejoice in the Lord. Look at verse 19. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. So in the ancient world, on the top of the mountains, a very dangerous place to be, very, very risky place to be. And yet, if you can get up there and if you can have sure feet, it's the safest place to be. You're safe from all your enemies. And so he says, God is doing this for me. God is my strength. So the final question is, how is this possible? How do we do this? Well, that's where we get to the gospel. We get to the gospel. So uh, in, in rudimentary form, Habakkuk looks to the gospel, or at least the gospel he had. So for, for God's people before the cross and before the resurrection, the thing that they looked back on, the thing they sung songs about was the exodus. So they, they knew the promises of God. They, they, and so Habakkuk says, 
We're about to go into captivity, but I'm going to remember and I'm going to rejoice in that time when God's people were in slavery in Egypt and all the things God did in that. And so he talks about uh, before him, verse 5, went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He talks about God delivering them. He talks about at Mount Sinai after he took them out, verse 10, the mountains saw you and writhed. He talks about Joshua who conquered the, the promised land, the sun and the moon stood still in their place. He's looking back at the Exodus. And because he looks back, he says, I know God delivered his people back then. Therefore, I can hope for the future, that a future Exodus is coming in Babylon, that God has promised that he's going to bless all the earth through his people. And he fulfills his promises. More than that, he's not only going to save his people, it's through his people that the Messiah will come. So he says, verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed one. He knows that God's people are not going to be totally destroyed because if that happened, he wouldn't keep his promises. The Messiah wouldn't come. And so that's what Habakkuk had to look at. He had to look at the gospel as he knew it. But here's where it's even better for us. We know that the exodus of Egypt and the exodus of Babylon, which will come in the future, we know that happened. But we know that the Bible says that those are shadows of the substance that is to come, that they point us to the ultimate exodus that came in Jesus. And so we too look at, sing about, remember, and repeat the gospel. So Moses comes and he, at great risk to his life, leads his people out under the power of God. You know, in in Luke chapter 9, Jesus has a conversation with Moses. He he goes up on the side of the mountain, and he takes James, James, John, and Peter, and Moses and Elijah appear, and Jesus is having a conversation with Moses. And in 931, it says, they began to talk about his departure. So, so Jesus and Moses are talking about his departure, but the word actually means his exodus. And imagine that conversation. Moses and Jesus, and Moses is like, man, uh, remember my exodus? That, w- that was pretty cool. But yours, man, that's going to be amazing, right? Like when you go to the cross and when you go to the grave, when you conquer all that and you lead your people free from not just uh, physical and political bondage and slavery, but from the slavery of sin and death and Satan, that's going to be amazing. And they have this conversation and that's what Jesus does. Moses risked his life to free his people. Jesus gave his life to free his people. Joshua would come in and lead the people to the promised land. Jesus is establishing a a promised land. King David would lead, and it says that he was a man after God's own heart. But Jesus is the substance, that Jesus is the heart of God. And he is the perfect king for us. And so we choose to remember and rejoice. And just like Habakkuk looked back at what God had done in the past so that he could have hope in the future, we have that too. See, because the fact of the matter is, uh, there was one exodus, but we're waiting another exodus. We stand between the promise and its fulfillment, just like Habakkuk, but even more so. All of us will leave here today, we'll get in our cars, we'll go 
to the restaurant, and the, the waiter, the waitress may mess up our order and we'll get upset. Our kids will bicker and fight. Um, we'll have a thousand inconveniences and frustrations over the next week. And, and we'll, we'll be just kind of longing for that day to come when the final exodus happens. Here's what the Bible says. Not only do we look back like Habakkuk, we look forward like Habakkuk. Jesus is going to have a final exodus. We look to the book of Revelation. It says Jesus is going to come, but as he comes, he's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. Revelation tells us that his uh, fire will be in his eyes. It's the picture of his intense holiness and his righteous wrath. His hair will be like wool. It's his, uh, his infinite wisdom. His feet will be bronze to tread on his enemies once and for all. He, he will have a, uh, a sword coming out of his mouth, and he will go through the nations in righteousness and justice, and he'll have a tattoo on his thigh, and it says, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's going to come lead the final exodus so that at that time there will be no frustration, there will be no pain, there will be no suffering. We look forward to that day. In the meantime, we stand between these two promises, one's fulfilled, and we wait for the next one. But a day is coming when your world will be rocked. None of us are exempt. A phone call could happen right now and our horizontal worship could disappear. Like our health could disappear. Our family could disappear. I talked to some of you in the back. Some of you will be going to funerals this week. Some of you are going to hospitals this week, and in this time, there's very little to celebrate unless you can go vertical in your worship. Oh, that the Lord would drive us deeper and higher in our second year in that worship. To that end, I want to pray for us, and we'll come once again to remember and to rejoice. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the transformation that you did in the heart and life of Habakkuk so that he could record this promise and this hope and this gospel for us. God, I want to pray particularly for those that uh, are having a, a very difficult time to see your active presence in our lives. Lord, as Habakkuk prayed, I pray that you would revive your work in our days, make your work known in our days. But Lord, I pray also that we would be like Alan Gardner and Habakkuk and, and even the Apostle Paul who from a prison cell can command us to rejoice in the Lord always and again to rejoice. Lord, help us to have that kind of faith so when the storms come, they drive us deeper in our joy and not rob us of joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>